You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. For Eric Singer, I'm Taylor Marvin. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, Dr. Giulia D'Angelo, researcher at the Italian Institute of Technology, talks to Dr. Simeon Bamford, researcher at the Event Driven Perception for Robotics Group. You'll find out about bio-inspired circuits to replace brain damage, efforts toward the commercialization of event cameras, and neuromorphic tactile sensors. But first, today's EE Times Current Highlights. What is holding back neuromorphic computing? We discuss the commercial readiness of spiking neural networks and the potential for spiking LLMs with Intel's Mike Davies. Black students and philanthropists feeling comfortable with HBCUs. Historically, black colleges and universities in the U.S. are seeing newfound support from the federal government and tech firms on the West Coast. Experts see rapid rise of Chinese EV makers. Chinese companies will dominate the global EV industry in the next 10 years, experts interviewed by EE Times say. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology and Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I'm Sonny Baines. And I am Giulia D'Angelo. In today's episode, Julia is talking to Dr. Simeon Bamford, a senior researcher at the Italian Institute of Technology. After the interview, we will be talking to Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues raised. Simeon Bamford has been a constant presence in the neuromorphic community. He joined Unilabs 10 years ago to develop and commercialize the Toby Delbrook Dynamic Vision Sensors and he explored many different approaches to finally land on neuromorphic tactile sensors at the Italian Institute of Technology. So welcome to Brains and Machines. Thanks for having me. Why neuromorphic? Tell me a little bit about your story and why did you join this field? Okay, thanks. I studied artificial intelligence in the mid-90s. That was in a period of time when neural networks were not really the main thing that was going on in artificial intelligence. And then I was out of academia for about a decade doing other things. I was teaching people to ride bicycles, doing a bit of software development, a bit of English teaching. And then I came back to study at master's level neuroinformatics and then at a PhD specializing in neuromorphic engineering. Since then, I went on to do several projects in academia. And then I spent several years in Zurich doing commercialization. This was a startup focused on trying to commercialize a certain type of camera called an event camera or a dynamic vision sensor. And again, that's a product of neuromorphic engineering. And for the last few years, I've been back in Italy, partly giving some help to neuromorphic startups, but mainly at the Italian Institute of Technology, doing blue skies research on robotics and tactile sensing. Where have you done your master and PhD? In the University of Edinburgh. And what was the topic of your PhD? What I did was I built a silicon chip that had an array of neuron circuits. Each one of these circuits used analog electronics to accumulate incoming currents on a capacitor and to produce digital events as outputs, which represented the spikes of biological neural networks 
These are the pulses that travel in the brain and perform the computation. So each one of these neurons had an array of synapse circuits. And what is a synapse? A synapse is the connection between two neurons. And each of these synapse circuits had the ability to listen to a different neuron for its input spikes and to change its weight, and that's to say the strength of the connection between the two neurons. So the chip had a few unique features compared to other similar systems at the time. Perhaps the most important one was that it had the ability to change the actual connections that it made between neurons as a result of the way that the connection strengths changed. And that in turn was influenced by the activity that was coming through the network. So that means whatever it was being stimulated by, something coming from the sensors of the system, something coming from the eyes or the ears of the system. And I showed how that could be used to help it find correlations in the inputs. You can think of that very broadly about the way that the brain tries to make sense of the world around it by learning at a very low level how things that it senses are connected to each other. So I think the main contribution on my PhD from the perspective of neuromorphic engineering is that at the time there weren't many and still aren't many systems that change the way that a neural network is connected while it's running. That is to say the connection topology and not just the weights and actually use that ability to help solve a problem. There are different types of learning. One where you learn based on being taught that what you're doing is not correct. But then there's another type of learning where you just try to make associations between things that are coming in. And this is called unsupervised learning. And that's what it was doing, where you learn, for example, how your senses are connected together. And I was focused on a particular way, two mechanisms that you can see happening in the brain work together to consolidate this learning. There were two halves to the project. There was a computational model, that is to say, something that gets computed in software that shows something working. And that demonstrated these two types of learning. And then there was an actual circuit, which turned out to be integrated on a silicon chip that showed that this model could actually work in real time. And these circuits are a mixture of analog and digital electronics that try to emulate what happens right down to the level of individual neurons. When did this happen? When have you done your PhD? So that was from 2004 through to 2009. Following all of the things that you have done, I can clearly understand that you have no fear in changing topics. And then I'd like to understand what's your take-home message from all of these things that you have learned. So how much of your PhD was carried on in your later research and how these things connect to each other? I have moved around and done lots of different things. I can't say I planned it like that from the outset, but looking back, all these strands are connected. I've had this great opportunity to try to understand neural sensing and computation at many different levels. So I had the chance to attach electrodes to the inside of biological nerve cells and see how they produce these spikes of potential, which are the basis of spiking neural networks. And I modeled the way that synapses, the connections, how they change their strengths. That was the work I just talked about. So this is looking microscopically at the building blocks of neural networks. And then I've also done some modeling at a slightly higher level where we try to represent whole groups of neurons as single units. And this is the kind of work that your previous guest, Yulia, described as attractor dynamics. And so on up, I worked at more and more higher levels towards applications and towards really whole systems. 
Then there's another axis, which is from the theoretical to the practical. Some of the things I've done were very theoretical, but I also got involved with the commercialization of dynamic vision sensors, which is this type of camera that takes inspiration from the way that the eye works. But it is a very simple and abstract model of that. And the fact that it's related to biology is really not important at all once the game becomes how to use these cameras to solve some engineering problem, by which I mean faster or cheaper or using less power than some other way of solving the problem, like with normal cameras or with other sensors. So there's a mix of considerations from very theoretical to very practical. Likewise, I spent a year working with the precursors of models like ChatGPT and trying to put that in a context where it could provide a business benefit. And for sure, there is some core neural inspiration at the basis of these models, but that's really totally irrelevant once you get close to the commercial deployment of AI. So when did it happen that you were developing the DVS cameras with Toby Delberg? Okay, the development of the DVS camera happened before I joined. It was patented in 2005 based on the work of mainly Patrick Lichsteiner. And then they worked to create these cameras and put them out to labs, eventually creating a small company whose job it was to sell those cameras. And I came in as one of the first employees of this startup in 2013. Some of the work I did was developing this camera. Toby had a European project called See Better, in which he had a half a dozen students working on different camera designs. And I made some small contributions to that, but mostly what I did was sales support and commercial development of the business case for the dynamic vision sensors. I took it to lots of R&D departments of major companies, showed them what it could do, talked to them about what their problems were, and tried to put it in the context and develop demonstrators that would help them to see how to proceed towards actual products using it. Can you just tell me the year that this happened? I joined Inilabs in 2013, and then in 2015, we founded Innovation, which was intended to further the commercialization of the sensors, and I worked with it until the end of 2017. I wonder, in that moment, where actually neuromorphic wasn't a thing, is still a small community now, I'm just thinking... What could you perceive when you were there? What was in the air? You could perceive the real start of all of it. Sure. I came in at a point where, let's say, dozens of these sensors had already been sold. And yeah, it was an exciting time because our sales just ramped up. We went out to demonstrate in trade fairs and we talked to major companies and the companies just kept on coming. Like uh, every major tech company, automobile company, aerospace company were asking us, can we have one? Can we try it? What can we do with it? There was a real sense of uh, excitement about this technology, which was promising to be one of the earlier successes of Neuromorphic. Not the earliest. We've heard the podcast from Andre Van Schaik, but yeah, an early success story for Neuromorphic. So let's now deep down in what you have done in your research. One of the projects that you have worked on attracted the most my attention and revolves around helping people who had a stroke to recover from brain damage, developing a programmable chip to replace learning circuits in the brain. Can you please introduce to the world what the RENA chip is? telling us which kind of learning mechanisms you were emulating at the Istituto Superiore di Sanità in Rome. 
It was a European project with lab partners from Spain, Austria, Israel, and other places, including our lab in Rome. And we targeted cerebellar learning. Some people know this as Pavlovian association from the classic experiments where Pavlov trained dogs to salivate by ringing a bell. First, he would ring a bell and then bring food to the dogs. And when they saw the food, they would start to salivate. But after a while, they would start to salivate even when the bell was rung. So they'd learn to associate the bell with the food that would come. This type of learning has been tracked down to the cerebellum. And this is the small lump at the back of your brain. But it's actually where most of your neurons are. And the overall project was to see if we could replace the learning that happens in the back of the brain by designing a silicon chip. And actually, we did manage to show that. I had the job of actually designing the chip that we used. There were many important roles in the project, including modeling, surgery, and so forth. But that was my role. And I have to say that it was a very simple demonstration, one that could easily be replaced by a few lines of code. But every time you get the opportunity to actually fabricate a silicon chip, it's quite an expensive and laborious process. One wants to make the most of such an occasion. So my motivations for designing that chip went beyond that simple demonstration to try to create a chip that could be reprogrammed to perform a range of neural processing and modeling tasks and thinking through what would be most useful in that respect. So it's like a chip which was reprogrammable at the very low level to build together bits and pieces that could be used to develop neurons or other functions that were useful in neural processing. Now I have a, a more practical question. All of this is very exciting and interesting, but how far are we for these applications to come into the real-world scenario? This uh, is talking about the ability of this chip to replace a function in the brain. Even when I was starting the course in Edinburgh, it was known that you could use stimulation in the brain to achieve certain aims. For example, really miraculous results in helping people with Parkinson's disease to overcome their tremors. And that's achieved by what ends up being a really quite simple stimulation protocol. Of course, the science necessary to get to that point was not at all simple but it turns out to be a good intervention. And there was also work on an even early commercialization of stimulators in the retina to overcome blindness. And those strands of work have all continued. Many people will have heard of Neuralink, which is one of Elon Musk's startups, where they're pioneering that concept of connecting to the brain. But I think it's yet to be seen if that becomes a useful or widespread kind of intervention. It would be difficult to speculate, really. You published another work based on neuroprosthesis to substitute cerebellar learning. What is it the difference with the RENA chip? It's the same project as the RENA chip. So one of them is a publication of mine where I describe the chip itself and how it could be used based on recorded data. But then there's a publication whose main author is Ronnie Hogri who was the main neurosurgeon student who was working on the project, which used my chip as part of the overall loop to actually perform this experiment in vivo. That means in a, in a living anesthetized rat. I could explain a bit about this experiment. One expression of this Pavlovian learning that neuroscientists have used to explore this concept is the eye puff response. What is, if someone blows a puff of air into your eye, you blink in response. 
It's a sort of unwelcome stimulus. But then if you make a beep sound before you do that, and you do that consistently, then you can learn to blink just before the air puff comes. And neuroscientists have used this experimental protocol to explore the concept. They've seen it working in rabbits and rats and also in humans. And so this experiment that we did recorded from a ganglia, it's a certain location in the brain, just underneath where the cerebellum is, where these inputs from two different places come from, we could pick out the inputs from an air puff stimulus to the eye and we could pick out by which I mean we could see in the neural recording, we could see the audio stimulus in the ear. And we had an output electrode that could stimulate a blink in the eye. And then we took those inputs and those outputs and we connected them to the chip. And the chip itself is what would learn this timed association between the stimuli and the response that it would produce. Now the rat being anesthetized, if a rat is normally anesthetized while you try to run this learning, then the rat doesn't learn it. When we ran this experiment and the chip would start to produce the blinks at the right time during the experiment, we argued that, that demonstrated that the chip was doing the learning that the brain was incapable of doing because it was anesthetized at the time. That was the nature of the experiment. And which kind of learning paradigm you were trying to emulate? To understand the contribution, it helps to think also about what another team was doing at the time. There was a team in America that also did an experiment where they recorded from the inputs and outputs of a certain area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is a place that's associated with learning. And they recorded, watched what that part of the brain normally did and built a model of it. And then they did a surgery that stopped that part from working and they showed that they could restore normal behavior. And we were thinking about how to describe the different contributions of these two projects. What we came up with is, if you think about amnesia, there are different types of amnesia. So there can be an event where, for example, you get a blow to the head or something, and afterwards you can't remember anything that happened before, although you can continue to learn new memories, and that's called retrograde amnesia. But there's another type of amnesia where you can remember everything that happened up to the incident, but then afterwards you can't form new memories, day passes, and then you don't remember what happened in, you're back in the same moment as just after the incident. We tried to describe the differences between these systems in terms of amnesia. Ours was a system whereby we didn't have any knowledge of what the brain had learned up to the point that we made this intervention, but we showed that it could learn new associations. Whereas the other team showed that they could capture what had been learned by the brain tissue up to the point of the surgery, but at least in the model they presented, they didn't build any capacity to build new associations. So that was the comparison we made, and it helped us to think about the different approaches to neural prosthesis and what it might mean if you were, to, obviously these were very simple models, but what it might mean if you went ahead and tried to build a practical device to help people. Let's now land on what you are doing now. You work at the Italian Institute of Technology with Chiara Bartolozzi on tactile, even-based neuromorphic sensors. So let's start here. What are them and why we should convert our tactile sensors to be neuromorphic? Roboticists are trying to use information from touch sensor. So on a robot, you may put sensors at the fingertips or the hands, 
I'm talking about humanoid robots now, but they don't have to be humanoid. So the robot reaches out and touches something and you need to be able to have a fast response of what you're touching for safety, but you also need to be able to perceive what you're touching. We make great use of this ability in our regular life for all kinds of things. You want robots to also be able to interact in a tactile way with their environment. We want to increase their ability to sense their environment through the sense of touch, whereas at the moment, robots are mainly using a visual sense and they're also making great use of LiDAR, which is a kind of 3D vision. But anyway, regarding tactile, the standard approach so far is to have sensors which measure the amount of pressure that there is at the fingertip or wherever your sensors are. And if you have lots of these sensors, you try to perceive something more detailed about what you're touching. But now if you think about it, so if you touch a piece of paper and you run your hand over a piece of paper or a piece of cloth or different types of cloth or a sandy surface or a wooden surface, you can always really tell the difference. You've got this great ability to tell the difference between different types of surface. If you stroke a piece of cloth lightly or you press quite roughly on it, you can still tell the difference. And so there's something about that experience of touching a surface which actually doesn't depend on how much pressure there is, but it really depends on minute and finely changing patterns of change that are detected by the mechanical receptors in your skin. And what we're trying to do with event-based touch is try to capture that more directly, rather than trying to build sensors that can measure an amount of pressure, or perhaps as well as doing that, we're trying to build sensors that can respond to differences that it feels from moment to moment in the amount of pressure. And to produce data and work from that data to perceive something about the world. And that's the nature of the data is a series of pulses, which are again like these spikes, the spikes of the nervous system of the neural networks that I was describing a bit earlier. One benefit of this type of sensing is that you get these bursts of spikes when there are these changes in perception. And what that means is if the perception is not changing, perhaps because you're not touching something, and then you're not producing any data. And therefore, no computation has to happen in order to process the data. So you could think of this as something that could potentially use, be used to save energy at a system level and reduce the amount of data that our systems produce. And if you don't have to consume so much data, then you don't have to specify so much capacity to move data around and to process it. And that means that you can use cheaper and simpler and fewer components. And that's where you may end up having a commercial advantage in the sense of building robots that have lower requirements. And here again, we have the same approach that we have with the event cameras, right? So we try to detect the changes in the sensory input rather than checking all of the sensors periodically. We are making the sensor telling us when something happened. This has benefits for many reasons, mainly reducing the amount of data that we need to process. You also talked about neuromorphic sensors for robotics, but do you see tactile neuromorphic sensors for any other application? Can you please name some of them? This is the ability to detect changes in pressures. It's the same mechanism fundamentally for audition because you can think about, it's really a, a very general sensing paradigm, if you've got this kind of circuit that can detect changes in an incoming signal. Now that signal can be coming from touch, but it can also be coming from 
sound because at the end of the day, it's still producing minute changes of pressure at a surface. So the mechanisms are very similar. But then, as you mentioned, the dynamic vision sensor fundamentally does the same thing. It has minute or not even minute changes in the level of light that a uh, sensor is seeing, and that is turned into a series of spikes that represent the change. So we think it's a, a very general paradigm that could be applied to lots of other uses, chemical sensing, thermal sensing. I think the list goes on. We can think of agriculture or any other automation problem that we have in industry. But let's think about it from an investor point of view, let's say. We have lots of applications that can go with it, right? Can these sensors replace existing sensors that are being used in robotics? I think there is lots of scope for that. And I think that the case for investment will be all around the reduction in data flows and therefore the specification of the robots that are necessary. In other words, the specification of the amount of compute and wiring and so forth that are necessary. If a robot today uses the cloud, if it has to put data up into the cloud and then get a response from a data center in order to know what to do, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, expense involved there. If that computing can be done at the edge because the sensory system, including neural networks directly attached to it, are more capable of perceiving and dealing with real world situations, then there's potentially great savings. So that would be the case to look forward to in applications. As for the range of applications, it's really huge. There's lots of possibilities for putting more intelligent computation at what we call it the edge, which means closer to the real world. In this sense, is revolution of the sensors to reduce data consumption, which is very interesting and very important nowadays because we struggle to store this data and to process this data. So let me ask you the last question. You have been around for a while now. I'm not saying you are old. So I feel like asking this specific question to you. What do you think are the limitations of the neuromorphic sensors? The main limitation of neuromorphic sensors is just this, their current state of development. The technology itself can be quite good, but it needs to be attached to a system that can actually make use of this event-based data. Some people attempt to do that algorithmically, and more and more we're attempting to do it by attaching them directly to spiking neural networks. We need to have a whole systems approach because we need to look at what is the benefit in terms of reduction of complexity or power, etc., for an overall system. And on the whole, we're not there yet in terms of producing these full system approaches. It's really a question that's tied up with neuromorphic spiking processes. The questions around the hardware there also have to be answered, but also the question of what are the ways of using spiking neural networks that actually has a power benefit over the, let's say, more standard approaches to processing data. And all of those questions, we don't have solid, complete answers yet. Where do you think that this community needs to go to solve these problems? And the last big question, we will or we will not convince the world that neuromorphic is worth to be explored, in your opinion? Okay. Our community need to look together at the overall systems, as I was mentioning. Will we convince the world that the neuromorphic is worth exploring? Yes, the ball is already rolling. The interest is growing year on year, so no problem there. Simeon Bonford, thanks a lot for being on Brains and Machines. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. 
Thanks, Julia. To follow up with papers and other resources, please check out the podcast page at brainsandmachines.net. And now to join the discussion, we have Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. Hello, Sonny. Hello, Julia. Happy to be back with you guys again and to discuss another interesting interview. Julia, I really enjoyed this interview. I know it's not your first one, but it was uh, a lot of fun. Simeon, who I've come across before, very unusual background for a neuromorphic engineer. And what a lovely way he has of uh, explaining himself. One of the things that I get fascinated by, maybe because I come from optics and telecommunications background, is the actual wiring, right? So we all know that you can change the weights of the connections between neurons, but can you actually put a wire or a connection where there was no connection before at all? And he sort of implied at one stage that he was involved in a project where he, they were doing that but I didn't get enough of the gist of how they were doing that. And that's always interesting to me, that kind of field. So I don't know about it specifically for his work, right? But I do know that there were folks like, for example, I think it was out of Quabena's work. Uh, there was one student of his who had worked on basically axon growth. So imagine you have a group of neurons over here, a group of neurons over there, and you're trying to basically make a connection between this group and, and that group. So there's a couple of ways to do it. You could say the connections pre-exist and you prune back and you only keep the ones that are relevant, or you can physically grow one step to the next step to the next step, right? Like an axon growth cone. And that is what was actually demonstrated on how to do that. Do you know what materials they were using to do that? Because I was talking to Elisabetta Kika and her colleague Beatrice Nahida, who we're going to have in the podcast later on in the season. And uh, I know, for instance, people are working with ferroelectric domains where they create the pathways. So this is not, no, this is all a CMOS, right? It's the making a connection by turning on a switch, if you will. So you've got an analog switch, you've got a, a memory that's going to decide whether it's on or off. And that memory is being controlled by the activity in the circuit. But this, this connection network already is there and you're just turning on which bits that activates. Essentially what you're saying is the infrastructure is already there, right? If the infrastructure has to be there, then you're not getting the benefit of growing it from scratch. That's why I kind of like the idea of these ferroelectric domains, because the idea is when they're not being used, there's nothing there. There's nothing drawing any power. There's nothing to address. There's no complexity to deal with. But maybe that's something we could go back to Simeon and ask him and put a, a paper in the reference list so that people who are interested in that, as I certainly was, can jump into it. But one thing, though, it is linked to the previous two Malikas, right? Is that same notion that can you use a memoristive type devices to make those connections, right? So imagine I had this scenario where I had a big sheet of material that initially by itself is 100% or nearly 100% insulating. But then when I apply voltages on either side, that forms a connection. So that would then grow that essentially certain connections can be made and certain others. The difficulty, of course, is going to be on the fan in. So for one-to-one -one connections, no problem. I can see that being done. But then how do you do fan ins, right? How do you take one neuron that is going to receive inputs from even desperately far 
inputs to it and that flowed. So I think that's going to be the part that is still interesting and still under research. I don't know whether folks have done significantly along those paths. Just to take that up just a little bit more before we leave it alone, I think there's always going to be that concept of local connections and long distance connections. We have them in the networks that we're talking to each other through right now. So the nearest neighbors can talk to each other and can make connections in one way. And then they're going to have to go through some cable that's going to take them further. So I don't think that structure is going to change. And there's always going to be an infrastructure that's required to do that long distance, which is why we want to minimize it, right? Which is why what brains do is so elegant, because brains are really good at minimizing those transatlantic cables. We are too, by the way. There's only a few trunks that goes across the Atlantic. (laughs) <laughs> so referring to what we said in the previous podcast, uh, if we want an aeromorphic engineer, we could say that Simeon is an aeromorphic artist. <laughs> he has done <laughs> everything. And I loved how Simeon walked us through his professional life. And uh, from my personal view, it's very inspiring to see how many things he has done. Also, neuromorphic for tactile, which is an emerging niche where... Actually, Chiara Bartolozzi was one of the first one, if not the very first one, exploring neuromorphic tactile. Then we also have Nitish Takor, Gordon Chance, and, and, and others. And there is a beautiful paper from 2016 on spike-based readout of uh, POSFET for tactile sensor led by Chiara. And Sim joined, actually, Chiara. And together they are developing front-end circuits with mixed-mode subthreshold. And I think it's beautiful and it could be the real future in terms of tactile sensors. It's still a niche, but I think it will explode very soon. I don't know what you think, guys, but it makes lots of sense. I can see the the real benefit. And just extending that further, I'm sure Chiara's group are doing this as well, but there was some work being done at the National University of Singapore where they were combining vision and touch. What I found really elegant about that work is it was all spiking, right? In that case, it was all address event representation. And they were taking the signals from the fingertips and the signals from the eyes, and they were merging the events from those to create something that actually could do better on tasks than it could do with either vision or tactile alone. That, to me, shows the potential of the field. And also, I believe, Ralph, I know you know just as much about this as I do, but Nitish Thacker's stuff also had that property to it, right? It was a mixture of different kinds of receptors, not in this case vision plus but different types of receptors that were being used to understand how the prosthetic in this case was feeling what it was feeling and then passing that through onto the user through electrical signals through the nervous system. Some of the earlier work starts with Lucas Warren's and even further back than that, going back to Silman Benzmeyer's work on trying to understand what are the different skin dynamics and the different receptors in the actual fingers in order that creates the spike trains, the sustained spike train, the transient spike trains, and then combine them together to get a percept that once you, if you are able to tap into the nerve right at the wrist through electrophysiology, can you essentially fool the brain into thinking that signal is coming from a finger and fool the brain into thinking about what 
object or what type of objects the finger was interacting with. And actually, there's a lot of people that has thought about that. It's actually in, in Sweden, there's a bunch of folks who have worked on these things, right? You can actually put almost like a acupuncture needle right there in the wrist, and they can tap into the nerve and basically give it codes that we can interpret. So what does that say is that the tactile sensors themselves are more than simply pressure and that's it. And I think Simeon mentions that, is the fact that there's change in detection, right? There's sustained detection, there's second-order derivatives and first-order derivatives and all types of interaction laterally, right? So like when you press on the skin, there's a whole divot that causes a depression, and that does not affect just one sensor, right? It affects all the different sensors and all the different types. So ultimately, the representation of the signal that gets transmitted to wherever the central computation would be at the brain, albeit a neuromorphic system, is rich, is very similar to the type of richness that you will find in the retina. Now, it may not be 100 or 200 different types of cells, as we talked about when we were talking about DVS or when we were talking about modeling a retina, but it's a lot still. So that's one good thing. So understanding the biomorphic models is, is really good. So that is a component, I think, that needs to be done, that needs to be understood and how we represent that. But what really was cool to me when I was much more involved with the tactile stuff was the following. So there's a work by Steve Shaw. He was a touch guy, recording from somatosensory cortex. But he demonstrated that if you look at the neurons receptive field in the somatosensory cortex and the receptive fields in the visual cortex, in the MT region, in the motion area, they are almost identical. So the idea that you use input from what seems to be disparate, right? There seems to be like this thing about touch and this thing about vision, and somehow you can combine them together. Guess what? Our brain is doing some form of this, you know, in, maybe in the way of different ways that they process it, but then there's some convergence at some point as well. So to me, it's really a perfect example of understanding the biology and then seeing the commonalities and then maybe being able to exploit those commonalities to, for us to understand better about the objects that we're interacting with. And Simeon talks about this. I have just much more of a curiosity. So we know that like for tactile receptive fields, we have different kind of receptors. We have uh, Bacini, Merkel, yep. Ruffini, yep. and they're all uh, detecting different pressure. And then we have slow adaptive, fast adaptive, adaptive that yep. is what we were seeing in a previous episode. Is there any example of someone that tried to, to do it all, to try to mimic all of these levels? Nitish in that paper, they were doing at least four. So they were doing, I think, high pressure, low pressure, fast change, slow change. Plus they were doing, if I say this correctly, nociceptors, which are pain receptors. The idea that where you're getting pressure that's serious enough to possibly cause damage to the prosthetic. I don't remember whether that was all of them, but I know that they thought that they were touching most of the bases with the five. I don't remember what they were doing temperature as well, because that was something that we also looked into, like how do you measure temperature as well and so on. My student who worked on the proto-object-based saliency, Alex Russell, that was one of the projects that he worked on as well, is creating a neuromorphic representation of the spikes. So there was a competition at one point, which was kind of interesting, is can you replicate the spike trains that you would see if you were cording from these nerves, right, coming from the hand, and, and come up with a model that would try to get the dynamics, the statistics, and everything. And we did a pretty good job in replicating some of those spike trains. And that was mainly the slow adapting and the fast adapting in those cases, right? But then we started looking at temperature as well, and temperature was hard. 
<laughs> that was a hard code to, to break. And we never really broke it. Julia, I'm curious, which of the projects that he talked about most surprised you? Because you actually know Simeon quite well. You've worked with him recently, I think. Is that right? So which of the things that he talked about was most interesting to you just because it, it wasn't something you had realized he would know about? The most interesting thing for me is when he worked on the RENA chip to replace circuits from brain damage like stroke, because this is basically the reason why I started biomedical engineering in 2011. And this is basically what I think we all guys are working for, helping humans. And then we play around with spiking neural networks, but then at the end, what we really want is to help people. And I found that specific project really attach it to the ground, something that might really help someone in the near future. So if I need to name a project, it's that project for sure. Ralph, did you have anything else in particular you wanted to say? Yeah, so I would say a couple of things, right? So he talks about his role in developing DVS cameras, but it is a little bit inicentric. I like his perspective of others, you know, although, you know, it all starts from the same root. I would say one of the things that was interesting about that work, I mean, he was only doing it for a couple of years, but it is so important to be in touch with the customers. And that was his role at innovation, was going out to the customers, seeing exactly what they needed and trying to make sure that they produced a product that would actually fulfill that. Ralph, did you have other stuff you wanted to talk about? Yeah, the one thing I also liked that he had worked on the cerebellum and trying to uh, use that as a mechanism to deal with replacement for folks who had some kind of memory loss. And, and he refers to um, also to Ted Berger's work, the hippocampus displacement chip. So that was a pretty interesting um, chip that had been developed out of UCLA, where you essentially bypass regions that have been damaged, be it through traumatic brain injuries or disease, by using neuromorphic chips effectively to hold the memory and to pass signals from one point to another in cortex, right? We talked about it in different scenarios when it comes to spinal cord and restoring locomotion, but in cortex itself is pretty interesting. Or even in the cerebellum is pretty interesting itself as well, right? So that work that he has done is also quite impressive and how it fits in with the work of Ted Berger and it's very interesting to read up on. Yeah, I also think this idea of trying to help people, of mm -hmm. course, you're at Johns Hopkins, Ralph, which is perhaps more famous, if I'm allowed to say this, for its medical school, even than for its prestigious university. And that's one of the things that I do like in this biomedical area is that it's ultimately it's all about helping people and not just making a buck and putting people out of their jobs, which is what Elon Musk seems to have been talking about yeah, in the last 24 right. hours. When did he say? He says that AI will make people not need to work or not have to work or something like that, right? That's Isn't right. That? That's right. And <laughs> that there should be no universal basic income, just universal high income, which is all very well for the billionaire to say, mm -hmm. but not very <laughs> easy for the rest of us to hear. And I, I actually, I've just had my windows done and I think that craftsmen and tradesmen, it's going to be a long time before we're going to be replacing any of these people. So I just wish we could have a more intelligent conversation. But in the biomedical space, I just think there's so much unequivocally good work 
being done. I think it's one of the areas that you can just be genuinely happy about contributing technology because there's very little downside to the work that we're doing in this space. Although I'm sure someone will find a way to weaponize it one way or another. Sorry we stopped here on such a depressing note. When we recorded this, it was the day after the British AI summit where Elon Musk was interviewed by a fawning Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Not an edifying watch. Anyway, thanks to both Ralph and Julia for their great comments. Next time, I will be talking to Professor Beatrice Nohida of the Faculty of Science and Engineering at the University of Groningen. We hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Dr. Simeon Bamford. EE Times Current is available through all the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode, along with other resources. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Greg McRae and myself at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Taylor Marvin. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.